This morning I was uh, reminded of a conference speaker that uh, when he personally started his own ser- series in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the high schoolers at his church started a bet. Betting on which high school class would still be around by the time he finished that sermon series. I've been told after the first two weeks, the middle schoolers wanted in on that. There's some truth to that statement. Most of these statements in this incredible Sermon on the Mount deserve our attention. They deserve our meditation. And there's such richness to it that it's hard to just skip on past it. Um, Because there's so much to it. But that's how Jesus intended to teach. He intended that his words be heard and not just get the full meaning of, the, of what he's saying, but to spend some time meditating on it, thinking about it, seeing how it applies to our lives. It's designed to really make us think. And as we return to this amazing sermon today, Jesus continues to bring clarity to the law. The rabbis taught to those of old on such topics, but often they got it wrong, often teaching part of what the Bible said, but failing to bring the whole counsel of God together in teaching people what, the whole, what each part of the Bible said on these topics and really getting a real, click, real clear picture on what God was trying to say. Now, the only thing worse than being wrong is being wrong when being a teacher. Because then all the people who come after you are misinformed. That's why, again, James chapter 3, and again, book of James, he says, not many of you should be teachers because we will be held to a stricter judgment. And that's a truth that keeps me up at night. Now, I'm, I'm okay with not being the most eloquent speaker you guys have ever heard, but I do not want to be corrected by God someday when I stand before God. So we want to be right. Hello. So getting back to our text, Jesus gave us a lens that is really helpful in interpreting this part of the scripture, interpreting this part of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 17 through 20 of this same chapter. We've gone over this, that our righteousness must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees if we want to inherit the kingdom of God. That not one dot or iota, not the tiniest part of the law will be relaxed or lowered. The expectations of the law are so high and they're not coming down. But part three is the good news. That that even though it's that high, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. So that all who come to him can be forgiven for all of our transgressions and shortcomings. You know, we we discussed anger, murderous anger through uh, through this lens two weeks ago. That even that the law was higher than the rabbis had taught. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just murder that was sinful. It was the anger in the heart that was sin. But we were comforted by the truth that Jesus had fulfilled this law for us, taking our sin from us, so that even though we fell short, we can still be forgiven. So that when God looks at us today, he doesn't see us for the wretched sins that we do. He sees us for the righteous sinners he has cleansed us to be. Just like how at the Passover, at the very first night, uh, the, uh, when, the, um, when the angel of death came over the people of Egypt, 
He passed over the doors that had the blood of the lamb painted on them. In the same way, when God looks at us today, he doesn't see our lowest moments. He doesn't see our greatest sins. He sees the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for that. And so now we'll turn this same lens of understanding on the next topic in need of clarity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, lust and adultery. Now, this is a hard theme for me to adjust from this platform, especially, you know, with younger people in the audience. So um, I'm gonna, I won't be as explicit as some of the text for clarity demands me be, but at the same time, I'm going to be as clear as I can addressing this topic. As it's in the scripture, we're going to address it. As we pick up in verse 28, again, it says that you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So starting with the big picture, again, the rabbis got this one wrong. That adultery is not just a blatant disregard for your marital vows of exclusivity. But just like how the birthplace of murder is anger, the birthplace of adultery is this lust, this passion. And that is where it becomes sin, not in the actual physical act. Now, it should be said that there is a difference between temptation and sin. That's what our first reading was highlighting for us. Um, and it's, it's true that in the same way that there's a difference between an egg and a baby. One of them is full of potential, and the other one has been conceived and is growing and has life. There's a difference between temptation and sin in that same regard. That's why James 1 tells us desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what he's saying there? You know, that one is just the potential for sin and the other has conceived and is growing. We're we're all going to be tempted in this area and many other areas. We all have sins in our life. And we're all tempted. The question is, what do we do when we are tempted? With this particular sin and whatever other things that we might be struggling against. Do we resist it? Or do we linger on it? The desire in us for that sin growing. And then brings us into that sin. And so to address, you know, this thing directly for a moment. You know... The industry of pornography is a growing and now multi-billion dollar industry. It's got numbers now comparable to the National Football League in terms of revenue. That's a horrifying thought. You know, and the average age of first exposure gets younger every single year. And many seminaries have even dropped their requirements for letting seminarians into their school because they're afraid if they drop the requirement that their seminarians don't engage in pornography, then they won't hit their minimum numbers for attendance. This is terrifying. This should be shocking to us. 
And so why am I harping on this point specifically? Why are we zooming in on this? Well, because many marriages end every year because of adulterous affairs. And I can guarantee you, it begins with pornography. It begins with that lust in the heart. It doesn't just happen overnight spontaneously. It begins with, it begins with that, what seems like a smaller temptation, and then it grows until it has longer, stronger, more important, more devastating consequences. It's the fuel that drives the affair. The desire is conceived with that lingering sinful gaze. And if it's not stopped, it leads to more sins and more drastic consequences. It's not a victimless crime. It leads to worse things. It leads to affairs. It robs marriages of intimacy. It, it sets a terrible example to our children of what expectations for marriage and relationships should be. It's a terrible thing. So what does Jesus say about how we're to handle this? How we're to handle these temptations. He says to deal with it in some of the most severe terms you see in the Bible. Where in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, if I had a nickel for every time this passage was misunderstood. So let's take a step back before we take a step forward with this. Does your hand or your eye cause you to sin? No, it doesn't. These are windows into sin, but they do not cause the sin. The problem's in our hearts, not the physical body. And, you know, when, when I was preparing for this message, I stumbled across a story of a man whose chief sin that he struggled against was lust. The man's blind. It has nothing to do with our own eyes or our own hands. These things don't cause us to sin. It's our own hearts that drive us to sin. Whatever it might be, this particular sin or others. So what is Jesus saying here? He's essentially saying, look, hell is a horrible place. If you could avoid it by cutting off your hand, would you do it? What about your eye? Would you lose one of your eyes to avoid this horrible place? Would you do it? And if so, then count the cost. Is it worth the cost to follow the Savior who does take away our sins and has provided us a way to avoid all of this, to avoid this place called hell, which the Bible does talk about as a literal, actual place. And it should be said, we don't go to hell because we engage in pornography or adultery or any other list of sins. You know, your sin might look different than mine, but we're all sinners. We've all been separated from God because of our sins. 
And we're all getting in someday prayerfully through the same Savior who gave his life as a ransom for each of us. Not because any of us are more righteous or less righteous than anybody else, but because of the blood of the Savior. And the way he phrases this section begs another question. Are we willing to do what it takes to avoid sin in our lives? Are we willing to do what it takes to overcome sin by the power of Christ in us? You know, in many ways, it would be easier to just say we could avoid particular sins by doing eye surgery, if you will. That would be, that would be faster. It's a lifelong endeavor to struggle against sin. It's a higher cost. But if we're willing to do the, but are we willing to do the heart work to flee from sins like this one in our life, as Jesus is calling us to do? Are we willing to get accountability and mentorship to help us grow? You know, I was once told that in two years' time, you will be the same person you are today, except for the, except for the books you read and the people you meet. What are we willing to do today to change who we will be tomorrow? Especially regarding which books we read. Jesus moves on to bring clarity to another area that the rabbis got wrong, divorce. As he picks up again in verse 31, that it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman, a divorced woman, commits adultery. Now, this is kind of a confusing section, but the, the context of this is that, again, the rabbis messed this one up. Rabbi Hillel uh, mistakenly uh, interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, If a husband has found some indecency in his wife, he could essentially divorce her for any reason. So the question becomes, you know, what did Moses mean by that indecency? And Rabbi Hillel taught that, well, virtually any reason, any displeasing thing, you could cause divorce. If your wife burns your toast in the morning, you could use that as an excuse for divorce. If dinner is late, you could get divorced. <sighs> Practical theology is so important. It's so important. <laughs> you see why it's so important to be right about these things. So... Just His thought was just make sure you do the paperwork correctly, give her the certificate, and send her on her way. Now, there's, I have a lot more to say about what God's plan for marriage is. Uh, but I'm going to wait until we get to chapter 19 to really dive into that stuff. Because that's really a better place for a lot of those thoughts. So we're going mo to focus on the main task at hand here. But that being said, what he, Jesus says there, you know, what God has joined together... Let man not separate. Now, it's not God's will for divorce, except for in this case, he gives an exception for sexual immorality, as Jesus said in our, in our text. And that indecency from Deuteronomy is very clearly sexual immorality, not burnt toast. The Bible really only affirms divorce's ending in sexual immorality, abandonment, or abuse, not irreconcilable differences like your breakfast and dinner. By the way, that whole term, irreconcilable differences, it's kind of a joke unto itself, isn't it? 
We all have irreconcilable differences. I am a morning person. My wife, I am a night person. My wife is the morning person in our particular case. That's not reconcilable. I am more of a spender. She is more of a saver. I am more extroverted. She is more introverted. I like to rest on my vacation. She likes to go out and do crazy activities with the kids when we're on vacations. None of those reconcile. These aren't, those aren't irreconcilable differences. In the sense that, oh, we're different. Of course we're different. God has made us to be different. It's the beauty of two becoming one. That, that, that God has designed it to be like that for a reason. The beautiful harmony of two different people coming together. It's not a reason to, be, to, to, to divide. That's a reason to grow together. But thankfully, you know, I make my jokes about myself and Ashley, but, you know, we fortunately agree on what matters most. We have the same values. We both love the Lord. And we both agree that pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. (laughs) I don't care what you guys say. So, and it doesn't matter if we do have points of contention or difficulties in our marriage. Everybody does. And as we saw when we opened up Scripture last week, Scripture has such an emphasis on reconciliation. And that as we learned, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have learned that there is no relationship that is so severed it can't be repaired. No difference that is irreconcilable. Because if my my sins have separated me so severely from Jesus, and he could win me back, what more is there to say? If our relationship between a holy and perfect God and me, a sinful man, could be reconciled, how much more so every human relationship this side of eternity? Though it might take sacrifice, it's possible. But that being said, one of the worst things about divorce is that it turns one of God's most beautiful gifts to all mankind into this legal document. Instead of enjoying this beautiful friendship, you have to, when when there's a divorce, you have to lawyer up. You have to fight over everything. You have to divide everything. And keep in mind, the main point that Jesus is getting at in this paragraph is that once you deviate from God's plans, marriage or otherwise, things start to get messy. Things start to get confusing. You know, I'll I'll put it in a different way. Imagine 20 years from now, you go to buy my house from one of my children. And, you know, you negotiate the price, you work out the contract, you sign on the dotted line, you get the moving van, you show up at my house, and I'm still living there. Well, now that's a problem. I didn't know anything about this. So now things get messy because there's all this legal stuff and there's all these other things. The situation that's supposed to be simple is now complicated. And that's what happens when we go outside of God's plans. And that's where I'm going with this. I I assure you this isn't an advertisement for title insurance, although I believe in that too. But in the same way, if you permit divorce for just any reason, again, irreconcilable differences, the divorce, much like the house sale, is not 
legitimate. And the separation gets messy. That's what Jesus is driving at here. And so, you know, as you look at this text, and as we understand it, it's possible to have a marital situation that is recognized by the state, but is not recognized by God. God designed marriage. It's not ours to tinker with or redefine. Or choosing uh, whether that be who can get married or who should get divorced. It's God's design to define So, okay, John, I get it. Maybe, maybe the bar is higher than I thought it was in all of these areas. Maybe according to what the Bible says, I am an adulterer in my heart. And maybe my marital situation isn't what it should be. Well, what do I do now? Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians 7 reminds us to live as we are called. I don't have enough time to really dig into the text, but it, it essentially tells us to start where we are now. Whatever situation we find ourselves in and start making decisions from there. If you've got one of those weird situations, there's a divorce and a remarriage, don't get divorced and then text your ex. That, that's not what God is saying to do here. But secondly, let's remember our lens to view this section through. That the law does demand perfection in all of these areas, but Jesus has fulfilled the law. That even if our relationships with the opposite gender have not been ideal, there is still forgiveness. That there is grace for every sin, no matter what it looks like. That where, wherever we have failed, Jesus has succeeded and has given his life as a ransom for us. And so now the question remains as we look at all of this, do we diligently work to honor God with how we live our lives? Do we have a willingness to avoid sin to the degree that Jesus is highlighting in these very passionate, vivid terms about our hand or our eye? And if we're honest, the answer is probably no. But true Christian maturity is growing in our desire to honor God with how we live our lives in this area and in all other areas. And if we keep doing what we are called to do as believers, we will continue to grow and honor him, whatever it looks like, living that sanctified life, the life of living to be more like Christ and wherever we are. So the encouragement is we keep reading scripture, we keep praying, we keep serving, we keep mentoring others or being mentor and being mentored ourselves, being discipled, and we will continue to grow and honor God with wherever we find ourselves called this morning. Thanks be to God. Amen.